Thank you, Will. Entropy. Anybody ever heard of entropy? Yeah, it's physics. That's the more I study the Bible, the more fascinated I am with physics. Entropy can be a pretty complex subject, but the basic thrust of it is if left to itself, an object, a thing, naturally moves from a state of order to a state of disorder. For example, somebody moves out of a house and nobody lives in it or does any upkeep to it, what happens? Does it get better over time? Oh, look, a new wing. Oh, look, a new roof. No? Does its condition improve? Or does it, does it degrade or get worse over time? All right, it gets worse over time. So it moves from a state of order to a state of disorder. Now, when you look up the word entropy in the dictionary, some common synonyms for it are deterioration, degeneration, crumbling, decline, degradation, decomposition, breaking down, and collapse. Entropy communicates the simple truth that the natural order of things is from good to bad. We have to purposefully fight against the breakdown and deterioration if we're going to have something that stays good. Anybody got a car that's got over 100,000 miles on it? The constant pull, isn't it? Always putting something in it. Axle, speed switch, muffler, catalytic converter, glove compartment gasket, canoeder valve. Always something. We have to purposefully fight against the breakdown and deterioration of things in our world. And not just in our world, but, hear this, physics says, in all of creation. You ever heard someone say that... uh, They saw someone from years ago that they had known and they really let themselves go? Is that a compliment? No. Not hardly. When we let go, we break down. Like gravity, entropy has a constant relentless effect on us, on our world and on our universe. It's all winding down going from good to bad, beginning at the Garden of Eden when God said that things were very good. And then sin came in and sent the whole universe on a downward spiral. Class dismissed. See you all next week. I'm just playing. You may be asking, so what? Why would we get a physics lesson this morning? What's this got to do with our text today? Let's find out. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to read verses 18 through 25, which I read during the music. And I've got to say, well, I'll say it after I read it. If you would stand for the reading of the Word, Romans 8, 18 through 25. If you don't have a Bible, it will be on the screen. But we do believe it's best to have a Bible in front of you. 
if you can. Look, I brought mine. I'm going to try to bring mine every week instead of just having my tablet thingy. <clears throat> the Word of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let me pray. God, we live in a broken world, fractured splintered, degrading, decomposing. And in the midst of it, you speak peace. You speak hope. You show hope can rise again up from the grave. Holy Spirit, please teach us today. Infuse us with hope today through your word for your people for your glory's sake we ask it in Jesus name Amen you can be seated I am more and more convinced that through this passage we will see entropy in action and we'll see how we are supposed to respond to that entropy And there's three main thoughts, and I don't normally do this, but there are three just glaring, blaring, screaming thoughts in this passage that I want you to note. And those three thoughts, those three main points are suffering, glory, and hope. Suffering, glory, and hope. So with that in mind, let's just dig in. We're going to start in verse 18, because that's the first verse, right? We aren't so affected by entropy that we're going to take them out of order, even though we've done that before. Yeah, it has happened before. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I'm pretty excited about this message, by the way. It's not as long as last week. You can kind of take a breath there. Even though I did, when I was getting ready for it, I usually shoot for about six or seven pages when I type out my messages, and I looked down and I wasn't even finished with the verses yet, and I was on page 8. I'm like, oh, no. I had double-spaced this week, and I hadn't double-spaced ever before, so I was relieved. So, what a way to start a passage, right? I mean, look at that verse. What a thought. And what does it start with? What's the first word? You don't even have to look, right? It's always four. It's always. <laughs> what are these verses always? And actually, if you look down through that passage, most of these verses start with the word four. Four. So, which ties it back to our passage from last week. And I do want to read that because we have to see what this four is there for. 
So I'm going to read 12 through 17. It'll be up here if you want to look at it. <clears throat> this is Romans 8, 12 through 17, what we looked at last week. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be also glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So from what, what we saw last week, we see that we were led by the Spirit of God. We are led by the Spirit of God. And when we're led by the Spirit of God, we put to death the deeds of the body by the power that He supplies. How do you kill sin? Come on. Think back to last week. By the Spirit. Thank you very much. That's the, that's the easiest way to remember how to kill sin. By the Spirit. <clears throat> so, we put to death the deeds of the body by the power that He provides. We're sons of God. We have the spirit of adoption. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're God's children. And thus we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And in this part, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And that really sets the tone for what we'll look at today. Suffering and glory are contained right there in that verse. So that gives us an order of thoughts. We suffer in order that we may be glorified. Let that sink in for a second. We suffer so that we can be glorified. Now what I want to establish with that is that in this passage, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, listen church, suffering leads to glory. Suffering leads to glory. And to turn it around, no suffering means what? No glory. And let me just tell you, starting out in this passage, I'm thinking, man, this is going to be a hard, hard thing to say. This is to come in and talk about suffering and suffering and suffering. But I promise you, the end result is not melancholy. You're not going to be disappointed. I promise. Suffering leads to glory. No suffering... No glory. Can we, must we, infer that from this text? That if there's no suffering, there's no glory? My answer is yeah. And I believe today's passage will help explain that quite a bit better. So suffering leading to glory. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now would be a good time to define our terms, okay? Suffering. What is suffering and what is glory? Let me define glory and glorification first. Now that's out of order, right? Now a few times in our past studies, especially back in John's Gospel 
and when we studied 1 John as well, there was a lot of talk about glory. Anybody remember what glory is? We've studied it quite a few times. Anybody remember the illustration with Scott Duff and Susie Houck and the guitar? <clears throat> glory, and I'll get back to this illustration in a second, glory is a right understanding of what something or someone is capable of. Okay? In the Scott and Susie illustration, I told Scott to pick up a guitar. Well, Scott doesn't know how to play a guitar. I said, Scott, play me something. And he... I'm like, great job, Scott. Good job. Now, give it to somebody that can play. So he gave it to Susie, and Susie picked it up and played this pretty pick and strummed. It was so pretty. In whose hand did we see the glory of that guitar? Susie's hand, not Scott's. (laughs) We saw uh, audio abuse in Scott's hand, right? When do we see the glory of something? When it's in someone's hands who can show what it can really do. So when we talk about God's glory, it is referring to a right understanding of who He is. To see God in all of His glory is to see and know Him unfiltered. And the Hebrew word for glory actually has a a meaning with it that, that implies weight. So it's like when you apprehend glory, there's a weight to it. It's not just glory. It's like, whoa, glory. So to have a right appraisal of who God is, to comprehend Him fully and unfiltered. So that's glory as it relates to God, but our passage is not referring to God's glory, is it? Who's it talking about being glorified? Hmm. Us. Our passage is referring to us being glorified. Now what would that mean? If glory is a right understanding of something, to know what something or someone is really capable of, so that's glory as it relates to us. What would glory as it relates to us mean? It would mean that we see us for who we really are what we are really capable of, and also that we can, fully and, we can fully appreciate and understand who God is. That's what glory is in this passage, speaking about us and to us. It makes me think of 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears... We shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. We'll see Him in all of His glory because we'll be in all of our glory. Whoa. Anybody look forward to that? I hope you do. I hope that by the end of this passage, by the end of this message, you surely do. This verse in 1 John implies that when Jesus comes back, we will be changed to be like Him. Hallelujah. Because we shall see Him as He is. That is the process of us being glorified. And it has to happen for us to live in God's presence for eternity. You try to walk into God's presence not being glorified. You are a pile of ashes quickly. You are dis 
integrated quickly. If you walk into God's presence without glory, without being glorified. <clears throat> so we have to be glorified in order to live in God's presence for eternity. No glorification, no life with Christ in eternity. And looking back to Romans 8.18, what has to happen before we can be glorified? Suffering. Suffering leads to glory. No suffering means no glory. No pain, no gain. No glorification, no life with Christ in eternity. And no suffering means no glorification. <clears throat> so we surely want to be glorified, right? Yay for glory! But do we want to suffer? Anybody excited about suffering? You're not. <laughs> I promise you're not. So, we've defined glory. What about suffering? What is suffering in this context? You think it's just religious persecution? I don't think so. Maybe it's your cross to carry. A leaky roof or... Uh... Anybody ever have brakes that squeak on your car? Oh my gosh. It wears me out. I mean, just flat wears me out. It wears them out too. It wears them out too. You're right. You think that's suffering? Eh, maybe. I think we think of suffering in this big, giant term and we think of the, the, the gross weight of it and we think of sickness and disease and scabs and Job and all that stuff that Paul talked about and that if we're not being persecuted and receiving the 39 lashes minus one three times, then we're not suffering. But, and we will get there, let me tell you something. Everybody in the world, entropy, is suffering. Everybody in this room today, since you're in the world... Hence, you're in this room. What's going on? You're suffering. You say, well, I feel pretty good. I'm having a good day. I had a cup of coffee. I even put some whipped cream on top of it. That's a good day. I'm not suffering, but you are. In this context, suffering is speaking of the eternal and the finite consequences of sin. And everybody is suffering. Everybody. <clears throat> it can and surely is both persecution and our cross. But Paul speaks of it here in verse 18 as the sufferings of this what? Present time. And I think that helps clarify for us what it may mean. To call them the sufferings of this present age is a couple of things. It puts them in time reference and it makes them universal to everyone in that time reference. Paul isn't just talking about his individual sufferings. And in the same way, he's not talking about anyone's individual suffering only. He's talking about suffering that is common to all in this present time. And we'll see more later in the passage, but it's putting it in the time reference before God's full glory is revealed and before God's people are glorified. Namely, this present age is the age ruled by sin and its effects on us and the universe in general. 
So the sufferings we will be referencing in this passage are the natural effects of sin to create a fallen creation as opposed to the perfect, very good creation that God praised at the end of day six of creation. This passage will explore those sufferings, what they look like, what they've done, and how they affect us and how they lead to our glorification. So what does verse 18 say about sufferings and glory? The sufferings of this present time, suffering implies badness, hard, unenjoyable. So what Paul is referring to, these sufferings are hard, they're bad, they're real, they're consistent. We all suffer the effects of sin on creation. He is by no means minimizing these sufferings, but he is putting them in perspective. For God's children, as we suffer, listen church, as we suffer, it is imperative that we remember that the sufferings of this present time are what? What's it say? Are not worth comparing with the glory, I can do that again, glory that is to be revealed to us. Now do you have that framed up? Suffering is bad. But as bad as it is, as hard as it is, it cannot compare to how good, how great the glory will be that will be revealed to us. As bad as it is now, it will be even more so good in the glory that will be revealed to us. As bad as it is now, it will be even more so good in the end. Bad now, much, much better later. Latch on to that. It's essential as we move forward. Romans 8, 19. For the creation waits with eager longing. For the revealing of the sons of God. This gets me pretty excited. Here we see the universality of the effects of sin a little better. It's not just me. It's not just us that are suffering, but what? The creation. The creation is all that God created. Everything created is the creation. Does that make sense? Are we, are we being oversimplistic here? No. And this creation, all of it, is waiting with what? Eager longing. Eager longing. Very excited. Can't wait to see it kind of longing. And what is creation, all of creation, longing for? Eagerly longing for? The revealing of the sons of God. All of the universe is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. I better not go there. All of creation is waiting for us to be glorified. All of creation. Black holes, they're waiting. Quasars, waiting. Dwarf stars, waiting. Pluto, which I still believe is a planet, waiting. Saturn rings, waiting. The Hubble telescope as it shoots out through the universe, waiting. 
waiting for us to be glorified. Ants, waiting. Termites, waiting. Rhinoceroses, waiting. Rubber balls, waiting. Church buildings, waiting. I want you to get a hold of it. From the molecular level to the cosmic level, it's all waiting for us to be glorified. Eagerly, longing. Not just waiting, it's like, oh, hum, oh, hum. It's like, <gasps> with bated breath. <clears throat> I have a picture of the universe whatever that looks like, sitting on the edge of its metaphorical seat, neck craned, eyes bugged out, looking for us to reach our full potential, to reach our ultimate destiny, to be what we were created to be, to be what we were recreated to be. Like a kid at Christmas, finally getting what they've always wanted. The creation, all of it, waits for our revealing. That word revealing is apocalypsis in the Greek. Does that sound familiar? It's where we get our word apocalypse, which doesn't mean the end of the world, by the way. It means an unveiling, a manifestation, an appearance. Anybody ever see Extreme Home Makeover back in the day? What was the big thing at the end? Move that bus. Creation is saying, God, move that bus. We want to see the new thing. All of creation is saying, move that bus. Move that bus. You you had to cry when you watched those shows, right? Because usually people were suffering. And they entered into a glorious new home when the bus got moved. All of creation is groaning. Move that bus. We want to see what you've got in store for us. Get that in your head, God. Move the bus. Let me see the extreme makeover. We want to see the sons of God as they truly are, revealed in all their glory. That's what creation is doing even now. Why? Verses 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, entropy, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Why? Go back to verse 20. What's the first word? For. Why does creation long to see the glorification of the sons of God? For the creation was subjected to futility. Now what is futility? This word surprised me. The word futility here in the Greek means what is devoid of truth and appropriateness. It means perverseness, depravity, frailty. The creation was subjected to depravity, just like we were. As humans, as part of the creation, sin brought about depravity. 
Anybody remember talking about depravity? It meant that we were unable to please God. It meant that we were hostile to God. Remember the mindset on the flesh is what? Death, it does not seek to please God, nor can it. In the fall, all of creation was bent, broken, put out of joint. And until all things are set right, which will be when we are glorified, all of creation is depraved as well. Now, does it serve God because it doesn't have a choice? Yes, it does. But it does it in blood and with fangs, thorns and thistles and rocks. That's why there's sickness. That's why there's death. That's why there's crime. That's why there's entropy. That's why sharks attack people. That's why you don't go on an African safari without a gun. Because lions will eat you. Rhinos will charge you. Elephants will stampede you. Because the world's broken. It was subjected to futility. We are not a creation, listen to me, Young folks especially, we are not a creation that is evolving upward. I don't care what biology tries to tell you about things becoming more complex and better. It's not true. We are devolving. We are entropic. That don't mean we're in the tropics. It means that we're subject to entropy. And all of creation is, not just us. We are a whole creation going from a state of perfection to a worse and worse state. The humanist would have us think that we're getting better all the time. But it's not true. We all, as individuals, and we all as a creation, are devolving, getting worse. You don't believe me? Watch the news. Watch the news where it's talking about some guy in Florida whacked out on some crazy synthetic drug, eating some guy's face in his garage. We getting better? Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror at the struggles you face every day. It's not just some guy on Flocka. It's you and me. All of us. All of creation. Entropy, sin, broken. But the creation is winding down, having been subjected to a fallen, depraved state when sin was introduced into the creation by us. Like, I didn't do it. You would have. We broke it, and our restoration to glory will, will bring about its being fixed. And according to these two verses, 20 and 21, that will surely happen. The creation wasn't subjected to futility willingly, but because of what? Or better yet... Because of who? Who subjected the creation to futility? Verse 20, because of Him who subjected it. Now who is Him? Was it Adam that subjected creation to futility? No, I don't think so. Was it Satan? No, I don't think so. This is my Father's world, broken though it may be. This is my Father's universe. God subjected all of creation to futility. This is the curse that came about after the fall of Adam in the garden. And God cursed all of creation. God pronounced the curse. Why? 
in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God didn't just say, well, there's sin. That ruins my whole plan. Let's just put the whole thing under a death sentence. Let it ruin itself and run itself down. Not what God said. God knew what was going to happen before the foundation of the world was laid. And in agreement within the Trinity, there was a plan to redeem the world and its inhabitants. The Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Who subjected the world to futility? God did. Put that in your pipe and smoke it for a little while. Did we do it? Yes, we did. But who subjected it to futility? God did. Why? Because God, listen, 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 is a God of redemption. And all of creation is telling His story. The heavens declare the glory of God. All of creation is telling a story and His story is getting glory in seemingly impossible places. His story is a story of hope, which is the third main point of the passage. Suffering, glory, hope. He subjected all of creation to futility in hope. Hope of what? That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God wants for creation what He wants for us. Freedom from bondage to sin and corruption. Freedom to reflect His glory like we do as well. And as long as we are affected by sin, so is all of creation. But when we are set free from sin and death, so will all of creation be. Creation will show our freedom. The freedom of the glory of who? The glory of the children of God. So like we said earlier, we must be glorified for God to be properly glorified. And when we are glorified, so will all of creation be glorified. Now stay with me. It's about to get really interesting. For we know that the whole creation, verse 22, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Some of you ladies went, oh, when I said childbirth. Now this, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning. Who groans? People in pain, people feeling intense sorrow. Have you ever just cried so hard you just, oh, it's desperate. People who are groaning are desperate. They're either hurting emotionally or they're hurting physically. But not all groaning has a bad outcome, right? What kind of groaning is the creation doing? Groaning in the pains of childbirth. Now, if you're in a hospital and you hear a woman groaning across the hall, there are two possibilities, probably more than two, but we'll put forth two. She's groaning in pain from a sickness or disease, or maybe she's having a baby. One outcome is much different than the other, isn't it? The groaning of a cancer patient has a much different outcome than the groaning of a woman delivering a baby, doesn't it? 
The hope we mentioned in the last verse is shown here vividly by showing that the groaning has a beautiful outcome. The pain being felt, though real and deep and disturbing, is bringing about something glorious. When Jesus was talking to His disciples about Him leaving, He said they would be very sad, but that that would be changed in dramatic fashion when they saw Him again after His resurrection. John 16, 21. He uses the same illustration. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, listen, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And that's what we see here in Romans with all of creation groaning in an expectant way. Yes, it is a painful way waiting for the joy to come after the pain. So creation is groaning as in childbirth. Anybody that's watched a child being born, ladies, you're better than I am. I mean, I, this is feminism right here. Let me tell you. Yes, you can have that. Okay? Glad, sorry, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad I don't have to do that is what I'm saying because that hurts. That, even if you get epidural stuff, it hurts later. And you know what amazed me most about the birth? Well, 28,000 things amazed me. But was to watch my wife get up and move around and then take care of that baby after she had given birth to that baby. Like, she's got to be hurting. She's got to be feeling effects. But man, you couldn't tell it. She was enraptured with this new life. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's what Paul is saying in the book of Romans. All of creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. Me, I'd be like, you hurt me. No, no. That's right, you cry. That hurt, dude. So, ladies, I defer. I'm more than impressed. All of creation groaning in an expectant way, a painful way, waiting for the joy to come after the pain. And tuck away the thought that she no longer remembers the anguish. We'll see that more in the end. But right now, we see the creation is not all that is groaning. Romans 8.23 And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly Wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's right, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. And that's referring to believers. First fruits of the Spirit, people who have the Spirit are the sons of God, is what we looked at last week, right? And why do we groan? As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Now wait a minute, I hope there's sirens going off in your head here. What did we spend all last week talking about? Putting death the deeds of the body. Why? Because we've been adopted. But this says that we're waiting for adoption. So were we adopted? Or are we going to be adopted? Yes. And the answer is yes. And he's like, I hate it when he does that. He does it every stinking Sunday. Pretty much. 
Last week we said we cry, Abba, Father, because of the spirit of adoption who resides in us. So we are adopted. But here it says we're waiting for adoption too. We are adopted eternally, irrevocably, unquestionably. What does Paul say here at the end of the verse that is the ultimate final move in our adoption? The redemption of our bodies. Remember Romans 7? It's why Romans 7 is so important if you're going to study Romans 8. O wretched man that I am, sin in my flesh, serving the law of sin in my flesh, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, while we experience the freedom of no condemnation in Christ, we still wrestle and we groan with the reality of living in a flesh that is not redeemed yet. What Paul is referring to in this verse is the final deliverance. And listen... That is the perfection of our flesh. The perfection of our flesh, the glorification of our bodies, along with the understanding of the truth of our spiritual condition now. We can have the spiritual understanding here and now. There is now no condemnation, but we have to wait for our bodies to be fully redeemed and glorified. And we groan for it. We long for it. We hope for it. And what is hope? Last two verses. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? For what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We've seen suffering. We've seen glory. And now we really see the final piece of the puzzle of this passage, which is hope. For in this hope we were saved. What hope is he referring to? Now go back to the last verse and it's referral to the redemption of our bodies. Our final adoption as the hope that we were saved in. Listen church, listen to me. We were saved in the hope that our bodies will be saved. That we will make it to the end and be fully glorified. Listen, not shedding our skin but having our skin, us, the most problematic part of us, redeemed and glorified. We were saved in the hope that God is able to make all things new, even us, even our flesh. We were saved in that hope. Not a hope that God would somehow work a loophole into the agreement, do an end around around our bodies, and destroy them so that we're ethereal spirits floating around in heaven, strumming our virtual harps. No. But that He would exert His power, His holiness, His glory, and bring us to full redemption. And we groan for that. But we don't see it now. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Now it's important to understand what hope is here. It's not, oh, I hope the Redskins beat the Steelers next Monday night. That's hoping for something I can neither control nor affect. I don't know the outcome of that. My hope is in something that I have no clue what's going to happen. But when the Bible refers to hope, it means something much more substantial, much more tangible. Hebrews refers to hope as an anchor for our souls. 1 Thessalonians speaks of the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So hope, biblically, is sure. It's unshifting. Now abide these three, faith, hope, and love. Hope is something to lash your soul to. And though we don't see it now, we know for sure that it is there, that it is real, that it is what sustains us. We don't see it, but we hope in it and for it. If we saw it, we wouldn't need to hope in it. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, what do we do? We wait for it with patience. Mm. So hope is what we use to help us wait for our redemption in the face of our sufferings, our groanings, our troubles, our sin here in our flesh. And while we suffer and groan, we wait with patience, knowing that our our end is sure, our redemption is sure, our glory is sure. Patiently waiting for a time when what is gloriously promised to us eclipses and surpasses the former things and wipes them completely from our minds, replacing the groaning and suffering with glory and worship. And Lord, haste the day when the faith is made sight. Listen, that is going to happen. And in the minutia of life, in the sin of life, in the suffering of life, we can lose sight of that. That's what hope is for. We come back to hope and we say, but God said. And that settles it. There's the bumper sticker that said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Nope. God said it, that settles it. You'll be much helped if you believe it. But the Word of God is sure, steadfast, immovable. And it is established in the heavens. And listen, part of that Word is that you will be glorified. And part of that Word is you will suffer in order that you may be glorified. Think it not strange, Peter said. Patiently waiting for a time when what is gloriously promised to us eclipses and surpasses the former things and wipes them completely from our minds, replacing the groaning and suffering with glory and worship. Church, hope for that. And patiently wait for that. It is as sure as the Lord Himself. So, wrapping it up, what's this all mean? How should we live in light of these truths? Three things. And we're going to look at suffering, we're going to look at glory, we're going to look at hope in our application points. Listen, first application point, and this is so freeing for me. Suffering is a universal phenomenon. Your suffering is not an individual freak of nature. Whatever suffering you're going through right now, oh, woe is me. How about, oh, woe is creation. It's not just you. Yes, you are suffering. I'm not making light of that. But so is everything else. God's not picking on you. God's not mad at you to make you suffer. That's not what happened. God was not mad at Job when the roof fell on his ten kids. 
God was not mad at Paul when he was taking the 39 lashes minus one those many times. When he was shipwrecked at sea, Paul wasn't floating on some flotsam, jetsam stuff going, God must be really mad at me because this really sucks. And we really get that out of perspective. Boy, God must be upset with me. Man, daggone, my car broke down again. God must be upset with me. I lost my job. God must be mad at me. I got cancer. No. No. You live in a fallen creation. Affected, marred, broken by sin. And the whole creation groans with suffering. We are all of us, nay, the whole universe is prescribed to suffer because God's curse, which came as the result of man's sin. Sin's entrance into the creation was a catastrophic occurrence and it marred the whole universe. And hear me say this, your sin is a catastrophic occurrence. Your sin affects me. My sin affects you. Your sin affects the cosmos. My sin affects the cosmos. It is not a light, fluffy thing. Oops, messed up again. Sin is catastrophic in its scope. It affects you. It affects your family. It affects your church. It affects your community. It affects the world. It affects the universe. Sin is cosmic treason against a holy God. And it's not all right. It's why we have to put to death the deeds of the body that we looked at last week. We laugh and say, man, I messed up too. (laughs) Sorry. No, confess your sin to a holy God. Against you and you alone have I sinned, is what David said after he committed adultery with a woman and had her husband killed. Your sin is cosmic treason against God and Adam's original sin marred the whole universe. And the effects of that sin, that curse, is universal suffering. God's not picking on you when you suffer. God's not mad at you. He's preparing you for glory. That doesn't minimize your suffering, but it surely does put it in perspective. If the whole universe is groaning, what makes us think that we should escape suffering the results of sin and the curse? It also helps us to relate to each other knowing that we're all suffering in some way. Everybody. Some more than others. Some more visibly than others. But we all suffer. Every single one of us. The Bible is full of promises of suffering for us. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That could also be translated as suffer will suffer persecution. And you want to see the pattern for how we're supposed to suffer? Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now that's suffering. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, the whole cosmos, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
And what brought about that exaltation? Suffering. What brings about that glory? Suffering. Christ's suffering. So when we wonder how to suffer, we need look no further than our Savior whose body was broken, whose blood was poured out so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be glorified, so that He would be properly glorified and that the Father would be properly glorified. That's how you suffer. Not woe is me, poor me. God is preparing me for glory. Therefore, I will become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross if I have to. In Christ, we suffer. And we always will until we're glorified. Which leads us to the second point of application. The first one was suffering is universal. Second application point is glory is assured for the believer. God cursed the creation and subjected it to futility for one reason. And that reason was to give it all, us included, future glory. And His glory depends on our glory. Now listen, I'm not saying God needs us per se, but He has set up a plan in such a way that He achieves and He helps us to understand His full glory so that He can be properly glorified. And for us to be glorified is part of His plan. God cursed the creation and subjected it to futility for one reason, to give it all, us included, future glory. And His glory is sure, and therefore so is ours. I want you to listen to two verses that assure us of both suffering and glory, and that one produces the other. 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. 1 Peter 5.10 And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. After you have suffered a little while. Eternal glory. As sure as I am alive... As sure as I am suffering, as sure as I have put my trust in Jesus Christ to save me, and as sure as God has spoken, I will be glorified. And a little further up the road in Romans 8, we'll see this even clearer. Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Mm. I wish we understood how strong that is right there. Notice the pervasive past tense of the verbs. Foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and yes, glorified. We will see it one day, but even now, it is just as true as it will be then. In God's economy, our glorification is a done deal. We're just waiting to see it for ourselves 
And while we wait, we wait in what? In hope. Third application point. Hope does not disappoint. Remember, the hope we have is not a leap in the dark out into nothingness. Our future is secure. God, who exists outside of time, has this whole game rigged. He said that we will suffer and that that suffering will lead to our glory. So we hope in the surety of Him and His Word. How sure is it? It's already proclaimed by Christ Himself and written down the future in past tense. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. Are you ready for a loud voice? Because it's coming. Get ready. Behold! The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. But that's not all. And He who was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Man, the king of the universe, he who was seated on the throne, said, Entropy... That's going to end because I am making all things new. And let me tell you something, church. We have no idea how glorious heaven is going to be as we get an increasing capacity to appreciate the glory of God and things just get better and better and better and better. And this ever-increasing capacity just grows and grows and grows and we see more of God and understand more of God and we shout, Glory! Because we've been glorified. And He wipes every tear away from our eyes. All the suffering that you're in the midst of now, that thing that's got you by the throat right now that is paralyzing you. Listen, the Word of God promises that one day you will be glorified and you will remember it no more. And what you're going through right now is not worth comparing to the glory that will be yours when you stand in the presence of God and worship Him for eternity. Your suffering is preparing you for glory. Hope in that. This hope is an anchor for our souls. I need to do a lap or something. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And I really think that means now and forever. Things aren't going to decay anymore. They're going to constantly, constantly, new, new, better, better, glory to glory 
to glory. To glory. Also, he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. When all is said and done, suffering will be no more for the children of God. Their full glory will be revealed. Their full glory will be revealed. And God's full glory will forever be appreciated in an increasing capacity. And hope will no longer be necessary. Hope will be gone in heaven. We will go from a state of brokenness to perfection, glory, and newness. This is entropy reversed. The curse is undone. C.S. Lewis said it in Narnia, everything that is sad is becoming untrue. But for now, we walk this broken world. We suffer with hope, with expectancy of the glory to come, which will far outweigh the suffering we feel now. One day, one day, one day in glory, will wipe away every thought, every remembrance of all the suffering we ever experienced. And that suffering right now prepares us for glory. And this is God's plan. Church, embrace it. Celebrate it. And suffer well in hope, in anticipation of the sure glory that will be yours. Let's pray. God, there are people who are sitting in this building right now who are suffering immensely. Some more than others. Some due to choices they've made. Some due to choices outside of their control. And God, I pray that you would speak to them now in the power of your Holy Spirit and give them hope in the midst of their suffering. Holy Spirit, would you minister to us as we suffer in this broken world? As we suffer the effects of the fall and the curse. But as we wait eagerly with all of creation for our glory to be revealed, the glory of the sons of God. May we suffer well anticipating that glory and may we hope in the surety that Jesus, you are making all things new. And your words are trustworthy and true. God, I thank you that you're not a God who works to alleviate all of our suffering. You're not trying to take our suffering away, but you're using it to prepare us for glory. And God, I hate the doctrines of men that try to explain away our suffering. I hate the doctrines of men that tell us we shouldn't suffer because we're God's children. It's, it's a lie, God. These doctrines of men that seek for our best life now, may it never be. May it never be that my best life is right now. No. The best is up ahead for me. Right now, I walk a broken world, God. Subjected to futility by you who subjected it in hope of glory. So speak hope to us, God, through your word.
through your people, by the power of your Spirit, who exists to give us strength so that we can walk this road obediently, so that we can walk this road and suffer well. May it be so in my life, God, in our lives. And may you get the glory for it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.